0: Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the means of grace, including baptism and Holy Communion.
1: And why we use grape juice. This is Table Talk with Mike and Angela.
0: Welcome to Table Talk with Mike and Angela, a weekly conversation focused on helping you understand more about the Bible, faith, and what it means to live a faithful
1: life. And now, here are your hosts, Pastors Mike Holly. Angela Martin.
0: Well, on the podcast today, we're going to continue with our focus on the the topic and the book of Being United Methodist in the Bible Belt. Uh, Today, we're going to be focusing on practices of faith. And this was a favorite topic of John Wesley and the early Methodists. In fact, the name Methodist comes from a group of Oxford uh, students as they ridiculed these diligent religious students like Charles and John Wesley and a few others. They ridiculed them because they were taking their practice of faith so seriously. Uh, They were, you know, uh, attending to these methods of how they practice their faith, such as meeting together for Bible study and prayer as well. Well as to go, uh, you know, every week to visit the sick and to visit those locked away in prison, and so these Oxford students, you know, ridiculed these these Bible thumping, serious, uh, uh, you know, Wesleys and others by calling them Methodists, and the name stuck.
1: <laughs> Here we are. Uh, Well, Methodists have a tradition of taking uh, an active approach to faith, as demonstrated with uh, John and Charles. Uh, The language that John Wesley used was means of grace. Uh, This is what the United Methodist Church's website says about that. John Wesley taught that God's grace is unearned and that we were not to be idle waiting to experience grace, but we are to engage in the means of grace. The means of grace are ways God works invisibly in disciples, hastening and strengthening and confirming faith so that God's grace pervades in and through disciples. The methods of the Methodist are the means of grace. Uh, early in the history of Methodism, the general rules were developed. And these rules were set for the small groups of Methodists who met to ensure mutual accountability. Uh, there was an expectation that if you genuinely Wanted to be delivered from sin, then the fruit of that salvation should show forth in your life somehow. Mm -hmm. And so there were three general rules. Uh, The first is do no harm, the second was do good. And then the third one was attend the ordinances attend the ordinances of God. <laughs> Harder to say than it is to do. Yep. Um, it is within this third basic rule that the early Methodist identified the ordinary means of God's grace. Uh, Wesley celebrated the fact that there are regular ways that God uses to give grace to us. God is not limited to these ordinary means of grace, but the reflective life of the people of God reveals that there are channels most often used by God to provide needed grace. Ordinary means of grace are the ways that um, God chooses regularly to give grace. In one of his sermons, Wesley wrote, By means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions ordained by God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels whereby God might convey to humankind preventing, justifying, and sanctifying grace.
0: And this topic is just so important for us to understand because sometimes it can seem very vague as to God gives you grace. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does God do that? And Wesley talked about these ordinary channels, like you mentioned, that, that, that he would provide grace to us. In in the United Methodist tradition, we, we break down these, these uh, means of grace into two sort of types. The first Uh, type that we're talking about is works of piety. And the second are works of mercy. Works of piety are often part of, you know, tending to our souls or tending to our relationship with God. There are these methods, these practices, uh, these channels through which God can, you know, help us grow in faith and in grace, like by spending regular time in prayer, Bible study, Uh, as well as trying to live a healthy life to tend to our bodies and to take care of our souls uh, and sharing our faith with others. Works of piety aren't just these sort of, in a way, more private practices of faith, but they also include communal or corporate practices, such as participating in the sacraments of the church, doing group Bible study, and even prayerfully discerning what God wants from and for our churches. We, we tend to, you know, call that Christian conferencing. You know, and when we're talking about these means of grace, I think it's important for us to understand that it's not just that, you know, we are doing these things and seeking God, but God is actually coming to us, working through these means of grace to bring his love and transforming spirit to us. You know, today we're going to spend a little bit more time on these corporate works of piety, but that is not to undercut the more individual or personal uh, works of piety. Scripture reading, prayer, sharing faith, all of these are important. But, you know, as, as Methodists, I think it's important for us to kind of take a look at what it means to be Methodists together and to practice these works of piety uh, in unity. So, t- we're going to talk about the corporate works of piety, and next week we'll try to talk a little bit more about this other group of means of grace, the works of mercy.
1: Yeah. So, the United Methodist Church recognizes two sacraments baptism and Holy Communion. Even though the focus in baptism is on the person or persons being baptized, it is still a community event. For churches. Baptism includes all ages, uh, even infants in the United Methodist Church. Baptism can be by sprinkling or pouring or full immersion. Uh, Baptism is done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and it is only done once. Uh, We believe that baptism is about the activity of God, and it is a statement and an enactment and the fulfillment of God's promise of grace. So United Methodists only baptize once because we know that God does not go back on His promises. To baptize someone a second time, to us it would be like we were saying that God did not keep God's promise of imparting grace. Um, and so even though we might slip and slide in our efforts and we might be unfaithful at times and, and lack uh, <laughs> the discipline necessary to keep our end of the agreement with God, God is always steadfast and faithful to us baptism is the sacrament of christian initiation offered both to those who come to faith and repent and to those who were born into the household of faith
0: and and, and that is probably where some confusion comes in because you know we're talking about being methodist in the bible belt and often in the bible belt what is practices is what is typically called believer baptism, you know, and the the idea is that it's only when somebody verbally professes their faith and has that sort of justifying grace, heart transforming moment where they, you know, truly trust in God, that that's when that person is baptized. United Methodists, on the other hand, baptize infants into the Christian community, the Christian covenant. And it's in that relationship where it's understood that after a child is baptized, that they are nurtured in the faith and brought to the point in which they can make a profession of faith. So in, in a sense, there's this understanding that, you know, the only real baptism in the Bible belt is that believer's baptism when you go fully under the water. Even though in the Methodist Church, it's not that we only baptize babies. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, we've baptized adults here at our church, but it's primarily done with children because often this is a family unit of believers, of people who are active within a church community that bring a child forward to be baptized, to become a part of the church and to participate in this important means of grace. Uh, When I um, meet with some families every now and then, because we are in the Bible Belt, there is an occasion or two where a family might say, we want to have our child dedicated in worship. And, you know, I don't really react negatively uh, because I often want to know why they chose that word, because usually a dedication uh, in, in vernacular of the Bible Belt is not baptism. It's more of a prayerful dedication of a child to God who then would eventually grow up and be baptized. When I gently ask these families often if they want us to perform a child's one and only baptism in worship, they often say yes, which means that because we're in the Bible Belt, there's this kind of belief that the words dedication and baptism is sort of interchangeable. And You know, I understand that, but it's important to understand the power and importance of words because the word baptism is about that that moment of, you know, having that channel of God's grace being opened up and for God to reach out to us and establish that relationship. So it's important for us to use these words. So what is baptism? What is baptism and why do we practice it? Three words stand out to me. The first is cleansing, the next is adoption, and I'm not in love with this last word, but you know, it's it's it is what it is, <laughs> launching, launching. So let's start with cleansing. You know, baptism in scripture is almost always associated with some sort of repentance and some sort of cleansing. Water is a sign of the refreshing cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. The washing away of sin and the restoring to new life. Immersion, or that going fully under the water, reminds us of our death to the old life. And then when we come up out of the water, our emergence into the new life. Pouring the water over the individual reminds us of the flowing grace of God. You know, I think of the 23rd Psalm, My Cup Runneth Over, Mm -hmm. this pouring out. Of God's grace in abundance. Finally, sprinkling, which is mostly what is done in the United Methodist Church, especially with children, uh, taking the water in the hand and then sprinkling or uh, placing that wet hand upon the head of the child, that's what we call sprinkling, reminds us how the Holy Spirit descended upon each head at baptism, providing the gift of the Holy Spirit to those disciples. There are plenty of images of the waters of baptism cleansing people of their sin. Over and over again, it's sort of understood that this is a part of what it means to be baptized. And I remember a friend of mine who had a uh, believer baptism, you know, they were an adult when they were baptized, but they were baptized in a creek, sort of a murky creek uh, in uh, an area of North Carolina they were baptized in the creek by immersion they were you know pushed down into the water and then brought back up and when that motion disrupted the floor of the creek bed you know mud and silt was sort of churned up in the water and as my friend looked back and saw that you know dirt and muck and mud sort of Uh, cloud the water and flow down the creek. He just mentioned it looked like his, his sin really was washed away. And there it was. Obviously, you know, we're talking about something that's invisible, really something that is uh, not visible, but it is certainly an act of God, a means of grace that helps us, of course, rise into this new life. That's so important.
1: I love that story. Yeah, baptism is so much about washing away our sins. Uh, in the Confession of Faith from the Evangelical United Brethren Church, baptism is described as signifying entrance into the household of faith and as a symbol of repentance and inner cleansing from sin, a representation of new birth in Christ Jesus and a mark of Christian discipleship. The biblical truth is that we can send away that grace given by God in baptism. And that is why a person baptized as an infant later is called to make a personal profession of faith. In the Methodist church, we call that confirmation. Uh, An infant baptism doesn't work for us without uh, that confirmation piece, without them being able at some point to make their own profession of faith. So that's why persons seek occasions to renew the baptismal covenant, not because God has changed God's mind, but uh, because we have not kept our end of the covenant, which is faithful discipleship. Uh, There's no occasion to baptize a second time, again, because God is always faithful. But uh, there is frequent occasion for us to confess and to repent, to profess, and uh, to renew our covenant with God. We sometimes remember our baptism in worship. And you know that just helps uh, helps us renew that new birth in Christ that we experienced at the moment of our baptism, and it uh, it lets God's Spirit blow away the dust that has accumulated on our journey of faith.
0: That's such a powerful image, and you. You know, we're recording this in February and uh, Lent is around the corner, which of course is that season um, uh, given to us by the church where we spend a lot of time in confession. We spend a lot of time in uh, repenting of the ways in which we have gone in the wrong direction or not done what God has asked us to do. Um, It's supposed to be a time of renewal, not just of beating ourselves up. And I love that image that just because baptism is done once and doesn't have to be redone, that doesn't mean that we do not tend to our relationship with God and admit that there are times in which we have uh, failed uh, to be the people that God has called us to be. And it gives us a chance to remember our baptism that even though we failed to be who God asked us to be, God still chose to send his son and that God still wants to include us in his family. You know, the image of baptism is not just about cleansing away, but it's also about putting on Christ, you know, that his his grace is put on to us, that his love and forgiveness is put on to us. And, you know, it is not by chance that the image of baptism is sort of dying and then being raised. Um, you know, is there because it's also connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. We also not only put on his grace, but we also put on his death in baptism. But we also put on his resurrection yes. in baptism. So, you know, there's this sense that not only are we dying to self and, and dying to sin, but we're also being raised to new life now and also to eternal life But remember that at the baptism of Jesus, God spoke saying that Jesus was his beloved. At his baptism, Jesus is claimed to be God's son in whom he is well pleased. And so in our baptisms, there's also this understanding that we're claimed as children of God. United Methodists bless the water in the baptismal font. You know, in our church, we even put a few drops of the Jordan River. Not that that's Mm -hmm. special water. It just has that connection to the river where Jesus himself was baptized. Uh, But when we, you know, pray over the waters in the baptismal font, when we bless the water, we do so in the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't baptize people into the Methodist Church. We don't even baptize people into, you know, Bluff Park United Methodist Church where we are. We baptize people into the Christian family. United Methodists baptize in the name of the Trinity because the Trinity represents the fullness of God. The Trinity is the communion community of God. The Trinity is the family of God. You know, and that is why it is you know so important for us to understand what it means to be included into God's family. You know, we are uh, brought into this family through baptism. And that's why it's you know tragic and unbearable for our relationships with one another to be broken. Because as in that in that moment when we're not unified, when we're broken, when we've sinned against each other, we no longer reflect that community, that family of God that we see in the Trinity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, probably most interesting uh and Enlightening conversation lecture I had in seminary uh, was in our Christian beliefs class. We talked about this idea of our language mm-hmm. not ever being enough, you know, to describe who God is, and uh, and I had just never thought about any of that. Uh, and of course, all human language falls short of naming God and describing God. And so uh, we cling to these words that we have that have special meaning for us uh, in order to describe who God is. A father is, is one of those. Uh, father is often used because Jesus used that term. Uh, father is sometimes used so Christians can find, uh, a, like I said, a common speech to address God. Uh, father is used because it is a personal, relational term, and we know in Scripture that Jesus called God Abba, which is like uh, a first-century Jewish way to say, Daddy. Daddy. How Southern is that? (laughs) Dad. United Methodists understand that God is bigger and broader than our language can articulate. But it is common for God to be named or described in ways that highlight a role of divine parent. In fact, there are plenty of uses of feminine images for God in Scripture. Psalm 22 depicts God as a midwife who helps birth babies, Um, Isaiah 66 tells of God who comforts us as a mother comforts a child. And so to fail to use some images of God that are feminine is in a way to fail to tell the entire uh, biblical story of who God is. Uh, When we are baptized, we become God's beloved children. We are adopted into God's family, as you said. And the church... uh, God is our loving parent. When we find ourselves in that family, in that church family, uh, we, we begin to relate to God as our heavenly parent.
0: So, you know, in baptism we've got cleansing, and then as you told us that God becomes our parent, we become God's children. There is this adoption, this sort of re-family making that happens in the waters of baptism. Finally, we have that word that I was a little iffy on, and that is the word launching. Um, I'm sure there's a better word out there, but what I was trying to get at in my point was that baptism is initiation into the Christian life, a life that's a journey of growing in grace and in faith. And when I think about that, an initiation into something bigger, something that is going to go on this journey of Christian life, not just that you become a Christian and that's the end. You know, being a Christian is a part of, as John Wesley said, the methods, the, the ways of being Christian, the life of a Christian and cr- becoming more Christ-like each and every day. And so I had this image in my head of the launching of a boat into the water for the mm-hmm. first time so it can begin its journey across the waters. Baptism is, in a way, that initiation that becomes a launching point. Um, and when we practice it for adults, we often launch them into the Christian life and we launch them into a Sunday school class or to a Bible study or a, to a you know class for new Christians. For children, we launch them into the nursery <laughs> or to the elementary Sunday school class or to vacation Bible school where they learn about God and learn how God is a loving parent and learn that to live a life of faith means to follow the Son of God, Jesus. So, the initiation or baptism of persons young and old into the family of God is one of the sacraments of the church appointed by Christ and in which Christ is uniquely present, granting the gift of a means of grace. Early practices of baptism, including baptizing a new group of converts at the Easter vigil as they came in to be baptized in the waters. And by the way, I am sure that our podcast listeners will be happy that we no longer practice it this way. But often these early, early church Christians, years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when they were baptized at the Easter vigil worship service, they were naked. When they were emerged out of the water, they were given white robes, you know, signifying the cleansing. Uh, and that they were robes, they were given clothes from God. They were part of God's family, their adoption. But the robe is also a symbol of the clothing we need for the Christian life. Our journey of faith begins in the waters as the Holy Spirit is given to us who will help us grow in faith and understanding over time. And remember how we said that baptism wasn't just a private event for the person being baptized? United Methodists make vows. Our baptism is not just the act of God's grace being poured out. On someone even though that's the most important part of the means of grace of the sacrament of baptism but we make vows we promise God and we promise the parents of the child or we promise that Christian uh, new Christian being baptized that we will do all we can in our power and in our energy in our faithfulness to help them grow in faith and to accept that faith for themselves part of the work of baptized Christians is helping others understand and live up to the action of grace that they have received. And I, you know, I often love in worship to remind people after they make the vow (laughs) that that means that they have just promised to serve in the children's (laughs) ministry, to work in vacation Bible school. Uh, to you know, go to our lock-ins with the teenagers and stay up all night with the junior high kids. And of course, everybody laughs. It's a little uneasy moment, but of course, that's not exactly what it means. But it means that we will do all in our power, uh, whether it be in fundraising to make sure that those ministries happen or even by participating as a leader or mentor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, baptism is not the only way that we experience God's grace. And it's not the only sacrament that we practice as United Methodist Christians. Primary among the means of grace is the Lord's Supper. Now, sometimes United Methodists call the sacrament Holy Communion or Eucharist. Uh, A sacrament has these characteristics. And so as I say these characteristics, think about baptism in Holy Communion. Uh, The first is that Jesus Christ asks His followers to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second is there is some physical symbol. Uh, Then the third is that God has promised to give grace to which the response is faith. And so as I said, those I'm sure you could think through those symbols, uh, the scripture where Jesus asks His followers to uh, continue those things in His name. Some Christian traditions claim that the Lord's Supper is simply a remembering of what God has done in the death of Jesus Christ. Other Christian traditions assert that the elements of bread and wine are not just signs of the body and blood of Christ, but actually become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, As United Methodists, we get understanding From both of these views. There is real presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament, but we believe that it is a spiritual presence, not a bodily presence.
0: And I think that that is another sign of what we have talked about before, that via media, you know, the middle path. You know, we don't think that there's no grace in communion, and it's just a ritual that we do to honor Jesus. And we don't think that the body or the bread has become the actual body of Jesus, and we don't believe that the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. But we see them as more than symbols, channels.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you know, roadways, uh, pathways for God's grace to come to us. They they serve as a conduit for God's grace to come to us as we, you know, worshipfully ingest them to take them into us to remember. The sacrifices that Jesus made for our sake, as well as to commit ourselves to following him all the way. For United Methodists, this Eucharistic meal is the invitation to gather around the table with a family of believers using ordinary elements to experience extraordinary gifts like remembering the sacrifice made by Jesus, anticipating the full reign of God's coming kingdom and celebrating what God has done for us. And I love the fact that we have, you know, sometimes in our traditional service here, the ability for people to come and kneel together and receive communion. We'll do that again after the pandemic, I'm sure. (laughs) And then, you know, one of our worship services, our modern service is called the gathering and it's centered around a table. The altar is a dining room table where communion is practiced every Sunday, and I love that image as well, that this idea is that it's a, commun- it's a meal of the community, that we all take it together um, and we take it as people on that Christian journey together. We are nourishing ourselves and receiving God's grace at the same time for the work and the life of ministry.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, here is our fun fact for the day. Okay. All right. Uh, almost all congregations in the United Methodist tradition use grape juice. This has been true since 1876. All right. Uh, this is when Dr. Welch uh, came up with this way. He, in fact, he pioneered using pasteurization to keep the grape juice from fermenting. And Dr. Welch happened to be a Methodist pastor and a dentist. And he began using this grape juice uh, in his church. And I think word got around that it tasted pretty good. And so other churches began to use it. And now, Look, all of us use it, and we see it on our grocery stores, right? Every time we go shopping, Welch's grape juice. Um, But we have continued to use grape juice uh, in large measure as part of its social witness against alcohol abuse uh, and as pastoral support of those who cannot drink alcohol and also as a way to maintain a table that is open to children and youth. Uh, I remember one time in a former church, I had... uh, grandchildren uh, of a couple visiting, and they came up for communion, and I I motioned, I I put the cup out to him to dip the bread in, but he was not, he didn't know about intinction. He thought I was trying to give him, you know, a sip of the juice, and and he kept backing away, and finally he said... (laughs) He said, I, I can't have wine. I, I'm not old enough. And so I had to stop and, and you know, tell him it, it was just juice. And, and he could just dip his bread in and everything was fine. But it was a little giggle there in the middle of uh, communion. Uh, but the United Methodist offer what we call uh, an open table. And I love that about the Methodist Church. All are welcome to God's table to partake uh, in this means of grace, everyone is welcome. We don't think it's a a Bluff park table or a Methodist table. It is God's table, and all are invited.
0: Okay. So another fun fact. Okay. You mentioned that you know Welch's grape juice or just grape juice in yes, general now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, was part of the the Methodist tradition of. Holy Communion. And you mentioned the witness against alcohol abuse. Yes, And the United Methodist Church has a strong tradition in, mainly led by Methodist women in our history, <laughs> against the abuse of alcohol mm-hmm. and the effects that it has on the Christian home. And um, I worked in a church when I was in college in Mount Hebron, United Methodist Church, West Columbia, South Carolina, where to the day that I was working there, a long time ago, um, <laughs> there was a temperance hall. There still was a temperance hall on the grounds where people would come together and they would preach against, you know, the uh, social breakdown caused by the abuse of alcohol, not by alcohol itself, but the abuse of it. And, uh, you know, while United Methodists are not against alcohol anymore, we certainly um, care deeply that anything that could cause harm to someone else um, is something to be treated very carefully. Yes. um, into managed um, in the way we, we use it. So, you know, you mentioned that we practice an open table and, and it's such a wonderful thing, I think, for people when they come to church to wonder, why is everybody coming up to do this? Am I allowed to do this? We, we go ahead and tell them. Right. You know, it's, it's for everyone. Now, part of what the tradition is, is not just that anybody and everybody can come up, but the idea is that when you do come up, and God's grace is active and channeled through these elements, that it can be a converting means of grace. It can be a way that someone connects with God. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I I even uh, heard today when we were interviewing somebody for uh, the ability to uh, become a United Methodist pastor one day, uh, this person's still in seminary, but mentioned that when they met their husband, she was serving communion and their eyes locked. And so, <laughs> maybe not just a converting sacrifice. Maybe it can be, you know, a way to marriage, too. Anyway, but the idea is that, you know, this converting sacrifice, that it can actually be used to connect people to God as well. That's part of our Methodist heritage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we just covered two of the sacraments, uh, and the only two that we have. But there are so many things that are sacramental in our Methodist tradition that can provide God's grace to us. Um, And, you know, even with the works of piety we've been describing, there are things like, you know, healthy living and fasting, and, of course, prayer that are just so vital to the Christian life.
1: Yeah. Uh, Corporate prayer and private prayer... Uh, is another means of grace that is so important to us. Uh, Wesley believed that prayer was not, however, uh, an occasion of bringing God up to date on our needs, you know, just reading off this laundry list of things that we needed God to do for us. Uh, Wesley believed that prayer was, was not about moving God to do something, but a way in which we could surrender to God's movement of our lives, that, that we would be ready to receive the good things He has prepared for us. And I, I love that way of looking at prayer, that it, it's a way that, that prepares us and, and, uh, and brings us peace and moves us to a place where God can connect with us in some way instead of just thinking that we're trying to change God's mind or uh, something like that. Uh, Marjorie Suchaki, a United Methodist theologian, has said uh, how God uses our prayers is up to God. Our work is not to control what happens as a result of our praying, but to offer prayer faithfully for God to use as God can and will. So there you go. We have talked about a lot today, and there's still so much more to talk about, and we'll do that next week. Um, We want to, like we usually do, give you some ways um, of maybe uh, practicing what we've been talking about. Uh, One of the things you might be able to do is if you have been baptized... Uh, chat with someone in your family to get the details of when and where and how uh, and by whom. And sounds a little, I don't know, cheesy maybe, but it says consider having a Christian birthday on the anniversary of your baptism. And I, I it's cheesy, but I love this because in my conversation with parents sometimes... They don't want their child to be baptized because they won't remember it, and uh, you know, my that that's usually how I come back with them and say, you know, but but they don't remember when they were born either. So celebrate their baptism, show them pictures, you know, they had a cake or whatever, you know, uh, and celebrate that day on a regular basis and. And they'll remember
0: it. (laughs) And and who would would oppose another time during the year to have cake together?
1: (laughs) Nobody. Nobody. (laughs) Um, Another suggestion is that you find a friend in the faith who will help hold you accountable for being obedient to the means of grace. You know, Wesley and Charles had their small groups uh, and the way they practiced their methods. Uh, So maybe you have a close friend where you could do the same thing.
0: Well, um, Angela, I agree. We covered a lot of ground and there's still more to go. We're going to come back next week and talk a little bit more, as we promised, about the means of grace and especially the understanding of these works of mercy, which are vital to the Christian life as well. We hope that uh, you enjoyed today's conversation. And again, we want you to remember to subscribe and also to join us back next week.